pay your attention, please. This is a piece of art. This Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's yellow sun. Doctor Doom wears body to conceal his own mangled form. Worst episode ever. Why? Who shot first? Yeah. Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and basically what I do is talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. But lately, it's been all Batgirl and Robin all the time. Specifically, Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson. And the reason for that is because I've kind of talked around it for the past couple of weeks, but basically a few months ago, I... I embarked on this sort of this Batman kick, right? The fanboy muse takes you sometimes places that you weren't expecting, and in my case, this uh, this uh, Batman comics thing that I've been doing, this reading project that I've been working through, I ended up falling ass backwards into a subplot about which I knew nothing, right? Now I've kind of t- I, I never. Ex- I've said a lot of this stuff in previous episodes, but I never actually said what exactly that subplot is. And the reason for that is because I kind of wanted it to be a surprise, and this episode is when I finally start getting somewhat into that subplot, right? Basically, in the pre-Flashpoint DC universe, there was a romance of sorts between Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. And so, because of that, and because of just how fucking awesome I found that uh, storyline to be because like I've never really considered myself to be a shipper really of any character but I really got into this whole uh, Barbara Gordon Dick Grayson thing I almost titled this little mini series that I'm working through right now I almost called it Barbara Loves Dick but I don't know that seemed kind of tasteless somehow so I decided you know what I'm just going to let the reader, or not the readers, I'm sorry, let the listeners uh, get clued into this by themselves. And then here in episode number 162, if you haven't already figured it out, that's basically what we're talking about. The, I guess the sort of, on the one hand, parallel journey that Dick and Babs went on with one another, and then also the relationship that they had to, uh, with each other, I think directly as a, as a result of all of this. And basically, Emily Middleton, I don't think she's the one who popularized this idea of you know, having a headcanon. But I think a lot of us, we all have the way the story goes in our heads, right? Where you take certain comics that fit into what you might call your personal continuity of who these characters are, and then... 
you just kind of tear it up from there, you know? You have certain things that are admitted into your headcanon, certain things that are explicitly excluded from your headcanon, and then there are other things that you kind of have to fit in there with a crowbar, even though they don't necessarily work all that well. And in today's episode, that's pretty much where we find ourselves, because I'm going to be talking about a shitload of Batman Adventures comics, not necessarily in chronological order either, but I'm going to be talking about a shitload of Batman comics that I think fit into this uh, Dick Grayson-Barbara Gordon relationship that, I don't know, I mean, the Batman Adventures, for those of you who don't know, this takes place in the animated series universe, right? This isn't the pre-Flashpoint DC universe by any stretch of the imagination. This is, I guess you could say, the Timverse. And so the this you know, these issues that we're gonna be talking about this time around don't really line up all that well with the comics that we've already talked about and the comics that we will be talking about. But fuck it, whatever. This is my headcanon and you know, as far as I'm concerned, this stuff happened. And if you don't like it, well that's just too bad. Tough toenails for you. So, the first comic book that we've got on the agenda this time around, this is The Batman Adventures, number 18. And uh, the cover date here for this is March of 1994. Uh, writer is Kelly Puckett. Penciler is Mike Perobeck. Inker is Rick Bershay. Colorist is Rick Taylor. Assistant editor is Darren Vincenzo. Uh, lettering done by Richard Starkings slash Comic Craft. Editor is Scott Peterson. So... Basically, what we see uh, right here on page one, this is a sort of a montage of Barbara Gordon packing her suitcase with her uh, Batgirl outfit stowed inside, as well as uh, a sort of a parallel to that, uh, some an unknown person loading a bomb inside of a, uh, a suitcase of his own. So three panels of Batgirl, or sorry, Babs, loading her Batgirl outfit into her suitcase, three panels of this other guy loading his bomb into a suitcase. So they... Uh, their journeys sort of cross over with one another at the Gotham City Police Station, where uh, Jim Gordon pokes his head out of his office and apologizes to Barbara for the fact that uh, he's going to need a little bit more time. He just needs another 15 minutes. Barbara is only too happy to wait. For too long, she sees that the guy in the pinstripe outfit has put down his suitcase and then left it, seemingly having forgotten it. She picks it up, chases him outside, and said, Hey, man, you forgot your, uh, your uh, briefcase. He freaks out seeing the briefcase and then takes off running. Barbara puts two and two together and drops the bomb inside of a dumpster. All of this by page five. And so the... And you know what? Because of the fact that I've got ADD, I don't know that I actually... Uh, read the title of this story. It's Decision Day, and this is Act 1, Eyewitness. So hopefully that clarifies things a little bit. So anyway, Barbara stuffs the uh, the exploding briefcase into a dumpster, which does... That pretty much takes the brunt of the explosion, and Barbara obviously survives. From there, we cut to Mayor Hamilton Hill's office, and he's pretty much ripping Jim Gordon's head off his shoulders and pissing down his neck, saying that we need to find out exactly who the hell this bomber guy is, and that's going to be your number one priority. We've got elections coming up next week, and we've got to look good. And so here we've got poor Jim Gordon kind of suffering the, I guess, ramifications of uh, electoral politics. So anyway, 
Meanwhile, as all that's going on, we, we see that Barbara Gordon's been eavesdropping on the entire conversation using a glass that she's got held up to a door. Now, I've tried doing this before, you know, holding a glass up to a door to see if you can actually listen better. And I don't know. I It didn't really work all that well for me, but I only tried it once. So I don't know. Anyway, so uh, from there, Barbara uh, looks through a bunch of different uh, mugshot pictures and ends up coming across the very guy that is, in fact, the bomber, but denies that this is, in fact, the guy. And then later, she puts on her Batgirl outfit and goes looking for him. Which brings us to Act 2, Smoking Gun. While Barbara's staking out the bomber's apartment and munching on french fries, she is interrupted by Robin. And like I say, this is now where we finally start getting into the Dick Grayson-Barbara Gordon relationship. And this actually leads into... Well, actually, you know what? I'll get into some of the continuity difficulties with all this later on. Anyway, point is... She ends up uh, meeting up with Barbara, uh, with, uh, not Barbara, with uh, Dick Grayson, well, specifically Robin, and they pretty much have this little adventure together, and as they're on stakeout, Robin notices that uh, there's a mugging going on in the alley right by the rooftop of the building that they're on, so Robin swings, swings into action to take down the muggers and uh, assigns Batgirl the task of... Uh, planning a tracking device on the on the bomber's car, which she barely manages to do. She jumps off the building, lands on an awning, somersaults off it, and gives the uh, tracker uh, her mightiest toss, and it barely latches onto the car's bumper, but damn it, it latches onto the car's bumper. And that's what counts. Right as Robin wanders out of the alley, carrying three of the thugs that were uh, attacking... Sorry that were uh, attacking the uh, innocent civilian. So they follow the, the uh, bomber to his new hideout, and this is kind of an interesting moment here where they sort of compare notes with one another. Barbara tries to force her way in through the window, but can't do it because it's locked. And so... From there, though, Robin, and I'm not completely sure what exactly he does. It's implied that he picks the lock in the window, but it's just, it, it's not really clear. So he talks about picking locks, but it, you never actually see him pick a lock. And being as it's a window, you kind of have to wonder how you'd pick that lock anyway. So anyway, they check through the bomber's hideout, and then they actually find the bomber. He's assembling more bombs. He tries to make a run for it and willingly gives himself up to the police who have arrived on the scene. And that, of course, begs the question of why is it that this guy was in such a huge hurry to give himself up, considering, you know, dude, you're going to be going down for uh, arson, attempted murder, uh, probably some other shit, too. Why would you be in such a rush to give yourself up? We don't really have too much time to get into that, though, because in short order, the news media arrive on the scene, Summer Gleason, interviews the uh, new mayoral candidate. This is Bob Hewlett, I believe is his name. Actually, no, this is uh, Jeff Griffin. I do apologize. This is uh, Summer, Sa Summer Gleason saying, Coming to you live with the man responsible for the cop bomber arrest, Jeff Griffin. And this guy just... He looks just like a slime ball to me. You've seen him on TV a thousand times. That slimy, opportunistic, 
little worm, you know? And I don't know. So pretty much right away, it's not really much of a spoiler to say, yeah, this guy's in on it. So um, Barbara, though, is no idiot. She realizes this is just a little bit convenient in as much as that the man who's after Commissioner Gordon's job just happens to catch the bomber. And it all seems a little bit too coincidental for Barbara's taste. And in fact, for that matter, also for Summer Gleason's taste, because she asks the same question. Isn't this a little too coincidental? Meanwhile, uh, right as he's in the middle of being interviewed, the mayoral candidate over and against Hamilton Hill arrives on the scene. His name, this guy is Bob Hewlett. And it kind of begs the question of just how deep does this thing go? That's page 14. That leads us to Act 3. No justice, no peace. Where one of the, uh, one of the uh, cops on duty lets the bomber out of his cell. It's pretty clear that he's been paid off for this. So the bomber hops in a car, picks up a suitcase full of money, and a plane ticket, basically to get him out of, uh, get him out of the city until the heat dies down. Not exactly the most successful plan though because Robin swings into action and does a pretty good job of taking everybody down almost all by himself almost everybody except for the bomber he takes care of the other thugs that are driving the car and like I say he's doing a, he, he's doing a really really good job here he's making a good accounting for himself with his batarangs and swinging around on a zip line kicking people in the face but the bomber still makes a run for it he meets up with Griffin and uh, Hewlett at the uh, uh, at the uh, Hewlett campaign headquarters, saying that you know he was attacked by Robin outside the police station. They've got to know what's going on, and that leads into an opportunity for Barbara to get a picture of the bomber associating with Hewlett and Griffin, which is pretty much the money shot that she needs to save her dad's job. Not exactly the best idea she's ever had though, because she ends up getting caught in the act uh, backstage and has to make a run for it. And this, again, leads into the fact that Barbara, her objective here is not necessarily to beat the shit out of everybody. Basically, what she's trying to do is find evidence that will incriminate Bob Hewlett and Jeff Griffin. She's not necessarily looking to beat anybody up. She needs to get evidence. And she finds a very sneaky and inobtrusive way of doing it, and then through no fault of her own, gets caught... But the point is that she's not here to be, I don't know, uh, an action hero type of megastar here. She's basically, she's got an objective she's trying to accomplish. And all of these things are really just a means to an end. And so that is actually very believable. And she ends up making her escape. And she uh, catches up with Robin later, turns over her film... And that's pretty much that. She knows that at this point that she can give Robin the evidence, he'll know what to do with it, and then, um, you know, he can take it from there. And the reason that is kind of important that she do that is Barbara needs to be separated from Gordon. It's not a good idea for Gordon to interact with Batgirl. So, anyway. On page 21, though... uh, Robin says that anytime Batgirl feels like working together again, she should feel invited to do so because he had the time of his life hanging out with her. 
and Barbara replies that, you know, she'd love to, but there are other things going on right now. She just doesn't have the time for it. But she does say that she wishes that this was not the only way that they could see each other. And Robin agrees with that. That's page 21. On page 22, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon bump into each other, and they snark back and forth. And you could read this... Like, if we go by the rules of continuity in uh, the, the animated series universe... Babs and Dick have no idea that the other one has a secret identity. So that's kind of the context in which all of this takes place. But not necessarily. In my imaginary continuity, the reason they're trading zingers and stuff like this is because they do know each other's secret identity, and they're actually happy that they're ending up on campus together at the same time. That's the way it goes in my, can in my, in my head canon, and you can't take that away from me. So, but the reason I mention all of this is because this is really the first of the comics that we've talked about so far that even hint toward any kind of a relationship between Dick and Babs. And so there's that. That's really the main reason that I'm including it. But honestly, I'm a huge fan of Batman the Animated Series and also the Batman Adventures. I love both of them, not necessarily for the same reasons you understand, but I do love them both. There was a time when the Batman Adventures was one of the very few comics that was coming out at the time that wasn't wrapped up in that whole Nightfall, Night Quest, Night's End, Chimichanga, right? And there are times when you really love those huge event storylines that just go on forever and ever and ever. But sometimes all you want to do is just read stories about Batman, and that's it. And this comic filled a great an obvious hole in the marketplace that there really wasn't a comic book at the time that was just Batman. You know, no bullshit. It was just Batman. I mean, even Legends of the Dark Knight ended up getting sucked into uh, Night Quest and God knows with Night's End. And I just wasn't as fond of that, I guess. And so this was really the only unaffiliated Batman title on the market at the time. And honestly, I realize that the inspiration for the Batman Adventures came undeniably from Batman the Animated Series, but there came a point in the Batman Adventures publication history where this had really only loose ties with the Animated Series, because there came a point when the Animated Series had kind of ended, but the adventures of Batman and Robin hadn't started up yet. And so there was a, this weird interstitial period where the Batman Adventures could do pretty much whatever it wanted to do. And the Batman Adventures as a monthly title never completely returned to the animated series continuity. You know, It would riff on it, but it wasn't really dependent upon the animated series. And so, anyway, so what I'm saying is that this issue and the others we're going to be talking about, but this issue works really on multiple levels for me. There's how this relates to Batman the Animated Series, which, I don't know, I mean, you, I mean, you can't, at the, I, again, you can't really deny the ties that it's got with the Animated Series. Then there's how it works as a sort of Batman monthly title unto itself, which, honestly, when we're talking about Batman, or uh, the Batman Adventures, I think analyzing this, you know, the Batman Adventures uh, stories as its own sort of 
universe unto itself. I think, you know, there's a time and there's a place to do that. And then, like I say, there's also how this fits in with my headcanon of the Dick Grayson-Barbara Gordon relationship. And again, this is really the first sort of salvo that we get in their relationship with one another, you know? So, so there's that going on. And that's really about as much as I've got as I've got to say about uh, this issue, and that's actually a really good uh, way of tangenting into The Batman Adventures, number 26. Cover date is late November 1994. The story title is Tree of Knowledge. Writer is Kelly Puckett. Penciler is Mike Parabek. Inker is Rick Boucher. Colorist is Rick Taylor. Lettering is Richard Starking slash Comicraft. Assistant editor is Darren Vincenzo, and editor is Scott Peterson. This is Act One Pop Gun Quiz, and it starts literally with a bang as we see Dick Grayson and uh, Barbara Gordon's criminology professor get shot to death by an unknown assailant in the middle of class, and then he makes his escape. And Barbara tries to take command of the situation, but the, the criminology professor, Dr. Morton, says, actually, none of that's going to be necessary. This was an unconventional teaching method, but what's a criminology class without a little crime? So the whole thing was faked, it was staged, and the point of this lesson is that the students are supposed to share as much of the stuff, as much information about the shooting as they can remember, considering the fact that they were caught completely off guard by what happened. Which is Dick and Barbara's cue to start bickering with one another. And they end up getting Dr. Morton's attention. He says, would you like for me to repeat the question? It's all kind of a trope of TV where characters will start bickering with one another. And then you find that the teacher interrupts them because, honestly, they interrupted him. Would you like for me to repeat the question? You know, So Barbara's got near-perfect recall of everything that happened. And uh, Dick uh, Grayson, he actually supplements uh, just a few minor details that Barbara overlooked. And we see Dr. Morton write Barbara Gordon and Dick Grayson's name down on a piece of paper and then circle both of them. And it's just not clear, at least right now, what he has in mind. But then it, the fog starts to lift a little bit, where on page five, he assigns Dick and Barbara a, a research project that, and conveniently or not, is going to take them out of class for a little while. From there, we cut to Dick and Barbara hanging around the library, talking about their futures. You know, what exactly do you want from this class? And Barbara, fittingly, I think, uh, takes offense whenever uh, Dick questions her joining up with the police force. And I guess the reason that works for me is because, as I've said, the Barbara that we saw in year one is sick as hell of people underestimating her, telling her that she can't do something because this, because that. You know, she's sick and tired of that. And so when Dick pulls that on her here, she she basically has no choice but to... I mean, as far as, I mean, from like a character standpoint, it's completely logical for her to get kind of pissed off about that. You know, fuck you, dude. Who are you to tell me that I can or cannot do something? I mean, who's your role model? Bruce Wayne? You want to be just like him? Well, you'll need plastic surgery and a lobotomy to make that happen. 
And there's just a little bit of back and forth here. And again, it emphasizes the fact that if we go strictly by the rules of this story, the continuity of this story, they do not know each other's secret identities. But fuck it, that doesn't work for my headcanon, so I'm just going to pretend that stuff never happened. Anyway, in terms of exposition, though, and this takes us to page seven, Dick reads from a book uh, all about the museum exhibit that the uh, rest of the class and Dr. Morton are checking out. He says, The twin shooters of Angus MacGuffin struck terror through the nation in the late 19th century. No bank, no private mansion was safe from this master criminal. And it's basically a picture of two revolvers. And that is basically what the criminology class and Dr. Morton uh, looked at while uh, Dick and Barbara were in the library doing a research project about other stuff. And I do kind of like the idea that this, that these guns were called, uh, they, they were the property of Angus MacGuffin. If you don't know what a MacGuffin is, Google it. It's, uh, it's kind of funny. It's very cheeky. So then at the bottom of page seven, we see Dr. Morton holding guns that sure look a lot like the Angus MacGuffin guns. So what the fuck's going on? That leads us over to page eight, which is act, the beginning of act two entitled Careful What You Wish For. And so you've got Morton and Barbara hanging around his office, just kind of shooting the bull with one another. Um, Barbara questions one of the grades that she got on, well, specifically about her midterm, and why it is that Dick Grayson got a higher grade than she did. And Morton says that her weakness is she doesn't exactly have the ability to think like a criminal. She's very good at the analysis of things. She's good at reviewing facts and um, citing references and all these sorts of things. But she's not really thinking the way a criminal investigator needs to think. And Morton's point is that it's not that she's not any good at this. It's that she th- these are skills that she needs to develop if she wants to if she's serious about de- you know pursuing a career in criminology. That's a point we're going to be coming back to before too long. But anyway, at that moment, rather conveniently, somebody barges into the room and announces to Dr. Morton that the MacGuffin revolvers were stolen not half an hour ago. And Morton, rather suspiciously, says, Extraordinary! And to think it happened as we were sitting right here talking. So, anyway. That is pretty much the lead-in to page number 11, which leads to Barbara. Again, this kind of calls her, I don't know, her suitability, I guess, for criminology into question. She barges into a a police photo lab and sees pictures from what I have to assume are a pretty grisly murder scene. And Commissioner Gordon's seen it all before, so this doesn't exactly turn his stomach, but this is kind of new territory for Barbara. And again, it kind of makes her wonder, you know, is this really the career for her? Anyway, so she finds out that Harvey Bullock is the one who's uh, been assigned the MacGuffin robbery and swings by his desk and reads his report and also watches the surveillance video of the the, uh, robbery from the museum. And so she makes her way to the museum in full Batgirl gear where she meets Robin, who's investigating the same thing. And they kind of compare notes a little bit before 
first off, she rewatches the the video of the the uh, surveillance video. Batgirl does the surveillance video of the criminology class visit uh, classes visit to the uh, museum, and then she realizes that it's possible that somebody planted a bomb on the on the scene to make it look like the robbery occurred tonight, but in fact it had actually occurred quite a while ago. And the only time somebody would have really had a chance to do that was during the criminology class's visit to the museum. But that's impossible, because everybody in the class would have noticed, and then she realizes that the two most observant people in the class weren't around for the uh, trip to the uh, museum. Dun, 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 dun. So that's page 15, which leads us into Act 3, Lessons Learned, where we find that, yeah, in fact, Dr. Morton did steal the revolvers, and he even set up a meeting with Underworld Fences to uh, to sell the revolvers. When he decides he, you know what, maybe this wasn't such a good idea, I want to back out of the deal. The mobsters aren't exactly having that, though. A deal is a deal. He's already agreed on this. The Everything's been set up and ready to go, so hand over the revolvers, and who's to say what might have happened next, but Batgirl and Robin swoop into action, beat the shit out of the thugs, and Batgirl chases Dr. Morton down. He pulls one of the revolvers on her and threatens to shoot her, but Batgirl sees through his bullshit and says that there's no way that he's going to shoot her. And Morton indeed does put down the gun. He begs for her to let him go, but Batgirl just can't do that. Which, let's face it, this is a teacher that she really looks up to. This is a professor that she's got a lot of admiration for. This is a big deal for her. She doesn't want to have to bust the guy, but she's got she's got no real choice. In fact, she even says, I'm sorry. I'm not wearing a badge, but I might as well be. And that's... I don't know. That's heavy. So, from there, that takes us to page 22. Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon are hanging around, munching on pizza together, and it both—it comes out that they both dropped the criminology class because, let's face it, whoever is teaching the class now probably isn't going to be able to teach them anything that Dr. Morton hasn't already. But at least in Barbara's case, she's starting to think that there are other options out there for her. She really, she really enjoys the research and analysis part of criminology, and so maybe she can find something along those lines. That's what Barbara says out loud, right as somebody behind her is holding a book with Oracle written across the, the front of it. And touche, Mike Parabek. I never, I, look, I've been reading this comic, I've loved this comic, Literally, since the day it came out, I never connected the dots on the whole Oracle thing there until this reread for this episode. But you, but it's it's right there, page 22. This is pay, uh, panel 4. Barbara says, I, I've just kind of summarized it, but I've been thinking about other options. I really like the research and analysis part of criminology. Maybe I can find something along those lines. And in the background, somebody's holding a book that has Oracle printed on the front of it. And... <laughs> Touche. So, and on the one hand, there's a little, 
that's a little bit poignant in that, yeah, Barbara does indeed grow, go on to become Oracle, at least in the mainstream DC universe, but that's not really her fate in the animated universe. At least, not necessarily. So, either way, though, uh, I just thought that was a really neat little moment there. I, and like I said, I never even noticed it until I did the reread uh, of this issue for this episode, and only then did I did actually notice it. So, uh, <laughs> kudos, Mike Parabek. So, at least I assume that's the one they did. I mean, maybe Richard Starkings is the one that put that in there. But this this looks like it was drawn in by Mike Parabek as opposed to lettered by Starkings. So, I don't know. But anyway, and so from there, Dick can't help himself. He pretty much shit-talks her. Says, I mean, you may have been the second-best student in criminology one-on-one, but you're no Batgirl. Which is kind of ironic. But uh, anyway, I don't know. Uh, both of these issues pretty much fit into my headcanon in terms of who these characters are. And also, a little something-something about their relationship. And as I say, it doesn't fit because... This, these, both of these issues really make no sense whatsoever if Robin and Batgirl know each other's secret identities. So, that I'm aware of. But at the same time, fuck it. It's my headcanon, not yours. So, if you don't like the fact that it's in my headcanon, well, tough toenails for you. So, anyway. So, I think that's pretty much it for right now. Um, what I'm going to do is take a break, play a couple promos, and then I'm going to be right back to talk about the Batman Adventures... <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, the Batman Adventures number 12 and number 14. Stay tuned. Trick your friends, scare the shit out of your relatives, or keep for your own personal use after you shuffle off this mortal coil. Magnus used tombstones. Perfect for people with names such as John Smith, Billy Bob Cletus Sideburn, Jimmy Hoffa, Nathan Bedford Forrest, Joseph Stalin, and dozens more. Magnus used tombstones. The best used tombstones this side of the other side. Some assembly required. No warranty expressed or implied. Void where prohibited by law. Batteries not included. Some tombstones may be damaged from armed military conflict or nuclear testing. Not recommended for children under the age of 25. couple of more issues of the Batman adventures that I'd like to talk about. This next one is, oddly enough, it's sentimental at the same time that it's kind of topical. Because at, the, at least at the time that I record this, the Batman adventures, number 12 
is going for some incredible prices on eBay. And the big theory behind why that is relates to this being Harley Quinn's first appearance in any kind of a comic book. So up to this point, she'd been kind of a fixture in the animated series. And now she's in comic book form. And the only thing I can think of that really explains why that's significant is the fact that, again, at the time that I record this, the Suicide Squad movie is coming pretty soon. And obviously Harley Quinn's going to play a pretty big part in that. So that's really the most I can think of. So that's, I guess, the topical aspect of it now, or, you know, the timely aspect. But as far as the sentimental aspect of it, I need you guys to just kind of think back to the way that things used to be in the 90s, where you'd sometimes have these amazing events and sales and stuff at your LCS, right? Or at least mine did. Just these incredible uh, sales where you could get discounts on you know, uh, various back issues and whatnot. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're going to pay full price for that that first issue of, uh, or rather the first appearance of Gambit. You're paying full price for that. But other back issues, you might be able to get them for some insane prices. And um, there'd be door prizes and all of these other things that were going on. And I remember that being a pretty common thing back in the 90s. And you still have them a little bit now, but at least when I go to those sales now, I can't quite shake the desperation. You know, when I go to my LCS for one of those huge sales, there is this air of... hopelessness about it, I guess. And that just was not the way that things were back in the 90s when, you know, these sales were, as much as anything, they were just kind of spiking the football, you know? So uh, that's pretty... That's just something that I that, that I remember, you know, and I've got a lot of fondness for that. So anyway, and that's kind of the, I guess, the background uh, for this issue. I, I went to one of those sales and my dad just started grabbing handfuls of comics off the rack and we ended up getting them. Now, I don't know if that's because he was just in a hurry to get out of there or he was feeling generous or, or what, but that's what happened. And... Batman Adventures number 12 was one of the comic one of the many comics that he picked up and for that reason alone it's kind of sentimental to me but for another reason this was sort of my gateway back into the Batman Adventures and what had happened was I'd collected the first couple of issues of Batman Adventures but I would say that the first 3 maybe 4 issues of uh, of this uh, title it hadn't really set up an identity for itself at that time. And so when I say that I didn't get the Batman adventures, I don't think there was very much to be gotten at the time. And that had changed big time by the, by the time uh, Batman adventures number 12 came out, the book had pretty well settled into a, an identity for itself. And, 
I mean, yeah, on the one hand, it was a tie-in to the animated series, and there's really no getting around that. But on the other hand, it kind of felt like this was, in, a, in its own weird kind of way, it was riffing on somewhat the continuity of the animated series and certainly, like, the aesthetics of it. But in a real way, it just... I think you could fairly well say the Batman Adventures was kind of its own thing. And I really do believe that to be the case. So, yeah, you can't... On the one hand, you cannot ignore the fact that this is a tie-in to the animated series. I've never been able to con convince myself, though, that this is in any way canonical with the animated series. This is just sort of its own its own thing, you know? And that's really the, the best way that I know how to put it. And I can't help but think at least part of my affection for this story, apart from just, you know, how cool the comic book itself is. This is an amazing cover. This has got, it's a cover image of um, sort of this not quite head-to-toe shot of uh, Batgirl, I guess maybe head-to-knee shot uh, of Batgirl, and standing behind her are Harley Quinn, and Poison Ivy, and they both look like they're about to get the drop on her. So, this is, uh, I just, I've always liked this cover, you know? And part of the reason for, I think, the kind of, I guess, the grab-me factor of this cover is the fact that at the time that this issue came out, which, again, this is Batman Adventures number 12, cover date is September of 1993, I don't think that Batgirl had actually made her first appearance on the animated series yet, so... I reserve the right to be wrong on that, but if memory serves, this was our first look at Batgirl and the animated Bruce Timm style, right? And I don't think that the version of Batgirl that eventually premiered on Batman the Animated Series looked quite like this one, but it's actually pretty close. I mean, Mike Parabek, he, he was pretty close with it, so there is that to think about. But all in all, I just think this was just a really cool cover, and... I just, I just like the composition of it. I mean, this is sort of a Mike Parabek classic, I suppose. So, anyway. the That leads us into the first page. The title of this thing is Batgirl Day One. Not Year One. Batgirl Day One. This is Act One, Ladies' Night. And this is a... The, the first page is basically a full-page splash of Batman. He's looks like he's chasing a hiker up Mount Rushmore and he's getting shot at his, uh, his, I don't even know what you call those things. Those little hiking cables. It's about to snap. He's about to chuck a battering. And basically this page is to establish why exactly it is. We're not going to be seeing Batman in this story. So just an important thing to keep in mind from there. Page two, we cut over to, uh, Commissioner Gordon just kind of shooting the bull with Barbara Gordon about a costume party that she's gonna that uh, she and Gordon she and Commissioner Gordon are gonna be going to. And Barbara kind of changes the subject a bit, and she says out loud, "What do you think it's like to be Batman?" And you can see that there's a sort of thrill factor in this for Barbara. You know the uh, jumping off of. Uh, jumping off of buildings and swinging around on zip lines, chasing uh, supervillains and the Batmobile, uh, beating up mob uh, mobsters and thugs and all this stuff. There's just a, a life of adventure there that you can pretty well tell that 
Barbara kind of wants to get in on. And Commissioner Gordon takes this as an opportunity to, I don't know, correct Barbara a little bit and tell her that, you know, a lot of people with a lot of guns firing a lot of bullets try to kill Batman every single night. And very honestly, the law of numbers here is kind of against him. Sooner or later, somebody's going to get a lucky shot in or he's going to make a mistake and that's it. It's over. And so Commissioner Gordon makes the point that he admires Batman, but nobody should ever envy him. And that kind of seems to have fallen on deaf ears because after he leaves, Barbara takes out the costume that she plans to wear to the party, which is a sort of feminized version of Batman's outfit. So from there, we cut to Molten Towers where we see Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn holding up a picture of uh, Barbara's friend, Sandy, I don't even know how the hell to pronounce this, Vanakur, V-A-N-O-C-O-U-E-R, so I don't know, Vanakur. They're standing outside of Molten Towers, and you get the idea that Harley's basically there to be God help her the muscle, and Poison Ivy's agenda is basically revenge for uh, the deforestation that's being caused by Sandy's father, who's the head of Vanakur uh, Corporation, and what she calls the wholesale destruction of old-growth forests that have made him rich. He's basically getting rich off the blood of slaughtered trees. So there you have it. Poison Ivy, the eco-terrorist. From there, inside the tower, we see the, uh, we see the uh, party-goers as Barbara Gordon wanders in, and it's it's basically people just running around dressed up like idiots is really what it comes down to. And before too long, Batgirl, because there's really no other, no other, nothing else to, uh, to call her, she ends up getting chased off by a member of the Cat's Eye security company. And that same member, that same security guard, gets taken out by Harley Quinn with a baseball bat and it becomes clear right here on page 7 that Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn were successful in kidnapping Sandy. So, Harley chases after Batgirl with the baseball bat, and there's a little bit of a struggle. Harley tries to headbutt Batgirl, but instead of hitting her in the nose, which is what you should do with a headbutt, she hits her in the forehead, which is a good way to knock yourself out, and... Seems like Harley got the worst of it because she just collapses to the floor. Poison Ivy shoots, or tries to shoot, Batgirl with those little toxic dart, uh, darts of hers. But Batgirl runs off, she escapes, she frees Sandy. And Sandy's actually kind of proud that, hey, she just uh, took on Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn and lived to tell, uh, tell the tale. So that's pretty good. They run off. Barbara rounds a corner... And this is just some incredible graphic storytelling on here on page 13 by Mike Parabek. Batgirl comes face to face with Harley Quinn again, and she's uh, pointing just this huge revolver at Batgirl's head. She pulls the trigger, but the recoil sends the bullet over Batgirl's head and shears off one of the ears on her cowl. 
And before Harley can take a, a another shot, one of the security guards sneaks up behind her, smacks her upside the head with one of those... You see them in crime movies all the time, those... I don't know what the hell. They're shaped kind of like shoehorns. Anyway, smacks her upside the head with that. She's out for the count. And then some another one comes up behind Batgirl, smacks her over the head too. And Batgirl comes to as she, Sandy, Harley, and Poison Ivy are uh, tied down to tables. Standing over them is Catwoman, who's there on business of her own. She's got her own little robbery that's going on. And... She's basically there to steal a diamond. And so she was using uh, the, the costume party that was going on as cover. So Batgirl manages to talk uh, Harley and not Harley. She manages to talk Poison Ivy into shooting one of, the, uh, one of her bonds and freeing her so that she can go after Catwoman. She breaks the glass case that uh, Catwoman stole the diamond from, which sets off the alarm. Catwoman takes advantage of her stupid uh, minions and convinces them to take the fall for the robbery while she makes her escape. She makes it to the rooftop and Batgirl meets her there and steals the diamond from her. And it's at this moment that I think that the truth of all of this has really set in for Barbara. This is not fun and games. Uh, She's risking her life and let's face it, Catwoman is extremely dangerous and... There's really no guarantee that Barbara's going to get out of this thing alive. So Batgirl pretends to drop the diamond off, uh, off of the roof. And Catwoman really has no time to get it because then she'd get captured by the police too. She makes a run for it. And uh, at the very bottom of page 21, we see that Batgirl didn't actually drop the diamond off the roof. She just dropped it into a fire escape. So from there... Barbara, in her, in her civvies, catches up with Commissioner Gordon, and he's obviously been scared shitless about what might have happened to her. And she decided that uh, she, this whole crime-fighting thing just isn't really for her, because as a janitor walks by, we see uh, her Batgirl outfit in his, trash, uh, his little trash bin there. So the reason... I didn't exactly compare dates or anything like this, but the reason that I think that this issue probably came out before the the uh, animated version of uh, Batgirl is because of the fact that this is sort of an an alternate origin story for Barbara becoming Batgirl here. And it doesn't necessarily negate what we see in the animated series. I mean, that's another way of... I don't know. You, you could think of that more as a, as a companion, I guess, than than an alternative. But I don't know. It just if if you want to see this as discontinuity, I don't really have a uh, a rational argument to give you. If you want to see this as more of a of a companion to the animated series and how Barbara became Batgirl, I can't really say anything against that either. So it, I guess it this is another one of those times when continuity can be a little bit uh, selective, I guess. So anyway, but like I say, I mean, this is just one of those, this is one of those stories that I've always had a a tremendous affection for. And this is right around the time of maybe you could say the peak of the comic book boom, or maybe like right after the peak of the comic book boom. 
it would never be this big and successful ever again, you know? And I just kind of view this issue as being a little bit of a time capsule. Honestly, at this point, it's a time capsule of a completely different time. It feels like a completely different world sometimes. And I don't know. It's just lots of fun, lots of action, and lots of Mike Parabek art. And if there's one thing that you can never have too much of, it's Mike Parabek storytelling, in my opinion. So that is a pretty interesting little segue into Batman Adventures number 14. And again, this is just this honestly, I don't think this is a this is as effective a a cover as Batman Adventures number twelve, but it's still pretty good. It's Robin ninja kicking some nameless random thug in the face, while the ventriloquist and Scarface prepare to set off this fucking huge bomb. So huge, in fact, it's probably going to take them out. So anyway, story kicks off with Robin foiling a I can't even really say that it's a robbery it's more of a a shakedown for a protection racket at a deli in Gotham City Robin foils that and basically takes on uh, four mobsters all in one go and the deli owner ends up making Robin a sandwich and before we get too much further I should say that the title of this story is public enemy or sorry public enemy this is Act 1, Breakout, which should pretty well tell you who the villain of the piece is, if the cover alone didn't do that. From there, uh, Robin, on page 5, comes back to the Batcave and starts just researching Bruce's uh, new files on the Batcomputer. And it comes out during his conversation with Alfred that he's thinking very seriously about well, dropping out of school, basically, is is what it comes down to. So, or at least once he graduates from college, what he's, pro- what he's thinking about doing is just crime fighting full time rather than, shall we say, exploring uh, other career paths. And this is something that Alfred obviously doesn't really very much approve of. On page six, we cut to Arkham Asylum where Ventriloquist makes his near escape because it comes out that he's tunneled underground and he's come back to the surface just a little bit too soon because he's still inside of the the Arkham Gate. So he smacks Ventriloquist upside the head and tells him to keep digging. And from there, this is uh, page 8, Act 2, The Grink's Jog. Ventriloquist and Scarface rob a bank and start a hostage situation. Uh, Robin finds out about that on page 10. Actually, he doesn't actually... Fi- actually, I'm going to have to take that back. He doesn't find out about it on page 10. He finds out about it on page... This looks like 11. But on page 10, <clears throat> Alfred tries to appeal to Robin's sense of reason. He basically says, look, if this is where you're going to end up in the end, no matter what, just because it's your destiny... That's fine, but you owe it to yourself to find out what else is out there for you. And then from there, Alfred talks about the choice that he had to make between life as a performer in the theater and and serving as a butler. And his life's trajectory was already taking him toward being a butler, but he felt like he owed it to himself to at least try being an actor. And 
Alfred's point is that Dick is probably going to find himself in that same position at some point or another. From there, he finds out about the hostage situation at Gotham First National Bank, swings into action, and meets Commissioner Gordon outside the bank. And they basically uh, compare notes on what it is that's going on inside. Speaking of what's going on inside, we get a little bit of a insight into uh, Scarface's uh, speech impediment. One of his thugs asks him why it, why it is that he can't say his B's. Instead, they come out like G's. And he said that he got his lips ripped off during a fight in uh, prison. And then he says, you should see the other guy. He ain't even gack on solid food yet. So, from there, Scarface apprises the ventriloquist on what exactly the plan is. And if this, for you, for you fans of the movie Die Hard, if any of this sounds familiar, well, it sounded familiar to me too. Basically, they're going to bring all of the hostages up to the roof under the pretense of escaping. Then they're going to blow up the, uh, set off a bomb on the roof and make their escape in the confusion. And the, the ventriloquist says, that's not a plan. That's a movie I told you about. And Scarface's answer to that is, as long as nobody else saw it, we're sitting pretty. So that's when things start falling apart. The... Uh, Scarface, I can't say the ventriloquist, uh, Scarface tries to reach his thug positioned on the roof, but we see on the rooftop the thug's been taking it, uh, taken out and the bomb's been disabled. Robin appears on the scene, and from there, the fight's on. Robin takes on uh, Scarface's minions, and pretty handily, I, I, I might say. He uh, takes them on all by himself before he gets uh, foiled, by Scarface announcing, hey, I've got another bomb and you're not going to be able to defuse this one. So uh, Robin clears out, leaves the bank, while Ventriloquist and Scarface try to uh, carry off this huge sack full of money. Ventriloquist falls over and Scarface struggles like crazy to uh, to retrieve the loot and then make their escape. But meanwhile... The bomb's about to fucking go off, and so something's got to give. Robin attaches a, a, a zipline around the ventriloquist's uh, leg, drags his ass outside right as, the, right as the bomb goes off, and takes out Scarface. So, happily ever after, I guess. On page 22, though, we get a little bit of a denouement where... Bruce and Dick basically compare notes on what it is that they've been up to as all of this stuff's been going on. And Robin trades meaningful looks with Alfred when Bruce asks if anything else went on apart from the ventriloquist that, uh, that he should know about. So Dick says, nope, I'm going back to school. And what we're supposed to infer from all of this is that Dick is going to follow his own destiny. He's not necessarily married to the idea of being a vigilante for the rest of his life. What he wants to do is at least try to see what else may be out there for him as Dick Grayson, the man. So, I don't know. This is just another one of those little stories that the Batman adventures would do from time to time where sometimes they would shine the spotlight on other members of the supporting cast. 
It didn't always have to be all Batman all the time. And I just really enjoy that. I like the fact that this was a Batman title that was going on that it, it, it just had the latitude, I guess, to be something other than Batman takes on yet another supervillain this month and then shuts them down by page 22. The story could go in other directions if the creative team wanted it to. And I just really appreciate that. And again, it's, it's Mike Perrobeck doing more, well, I can't really say Batman, but he's doing yet more art. And so there's that to think about. But another thing is that Robin is, he was a familiar sight on Batman the Animated Series, but he wasn't in every single episode. It was always a special occasion when we saw Robin, and we hadn't seen very much of him, I don't think, by the time uh, this issue came out. And so it was, that alone made it kind of fun. But the fact that this is a very Robin-centric type of story, I've just always liked it. And the reason that I'm I'm talking about these two issues is because it, it sort of fits in with my little headcanon of this story between Babs and Dick. Really is what it comes down to, you know. It doesn't really fit in with the mainstream DC Universe continuity, but it does fit in rather nicely with my headcanon. It's not perfect, I'll be the first to admit that, but it's still a ton of fun. So, really happy about that. So, I don't know. It's just really enjoy this. I, re- I really enjoy Batman Adventures as a title in general, but I also really enjoy these specific issues, these four issues that I've talked about in this episode. Batman Adventures number 12, 14, 18, and 26. To the best of my recollection, those are really the main occasions when Batman Adventures would kind of pause, shift gears, and focus not just on other characters, but specifically Babs and Dick. And I just really value that. So, anyway, and like I say, it just it fits in, not perfectly, but it does fit in pretty well with this headcanon that I've got going concerning the story of, uh, of uh, Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon. And that is not to be underestimated. So, I don't know, just tons of fun. And guys, I mean, I, I tend to really enjoy just about all of the... Uh, of the comics that, you know, I just gush about this much. I tend to, obviously, I, I tend to enjoy all of them. But guys, I really do recommend tracking down these issues and reading them for yourself. I mean, especially if you're a fan of Batman the Animated Series, you owe it to yourself to read the Batman Adventures comic in general, but specifically issues number 12, 14, 18, and 26. It, they're just, they're a ton of fun, and I really can't recommend them enough. So there you have it so I think that's basically going to be it for this week as to next week I'm going to be talking about Nightwing year one it's it's this mini series that came out that basically shows the transition that Dick Grayson made from Nightwing or rather from Robin into being Nightwing so um, come back for that so I think that's pretty much it for this week though so bye everybody I will see you next week
Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which at this very moment still prevails and could at any time lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi folks, Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters, or as they're called in Japan, daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at TwoTrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes. And you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. 
friends. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.